often I have had the sense, I'm sure you have as well, to do something. I have had a sense of what kind of a person I ought to be, what I kind of a person I want to become. And I've been in that thought, in that desire, been stopped by a two-word phrase, but I. You know, I, I, I feel like I ought to get in shape, I ought to exercise, but I don't give enough sleep, but I don't have time, but I, well, my tires are flat and my feet are sore, so I can't. I know that I should come to midweek service here at the Village Church and go to that Bible study that Dwayne's leading out in or the one that is going to be about how to have a better marriage, but, you know, I'm just too introverted. I'm, I'm too busy. I, I can't. I'd love to have my, t- my finances in terrific order. <clears throat> I'd love to support the gospel message with, with my tithe, and I'd love to be involved with the village church ministry through my offerings, but, but my margin is too small. My credit card payments are too high. Or you might say, I, I know that I should eat better. I should eat broccoli and kale and, and, and sprouts and tofu, but, I, but I, I love butter and cheese. I love those things that grow out of my oven. I, but I, you know, but I. We might call that the defeater belief. The defeater belief. It not only keeps me from succeeding in what really matters, but it stops me from even trying. And then I don't even know if I even could have done it. But I. It turns out that that phrase, but I, is something that oftentimes happens in the Bible. In fact, you see it quite often. Many times it's used as an escape from God's calling on our lives. Moses was asked by God to speak to Pharaoh and tell him to let his people go. But Moses says, but I, I'm slow of speech and i slow of tongue. I can't do that. And God asked Gideon to deliver his people from the Midianites. But Gideon said, but I'm the least in my family. And I'm too young. God comes to Jeremiah and tells him to speak a word to Israel. And Jeremiah says, but I don't know how to speak. God comes to Esther through Mordecai and asks her to approach the the king and appeal for Israel. But she's adamant. But I haven't been called before the king for 30 days. Abraham has promised that he'll be the father of a great nation. And he responds, but I'm too old. Peter, Jesus says, cast your net on the other side of the boat and you'll see a miraculous thing. And Peter says, but I tried all night and I can't catch anything. Over and over again, we see those words, those same words, but I, but I, but I, I can't, I, I won't, I, I shouldn't. And what's interesting is that God pretty much never disputes that inadequacy. That's what we do when someone tells us or when we feel that we can't. We, we, we kind of go into a denial of inadequacy. Oh, no, you can do this. You're, you're amazing. You know, we pat him on the back. We've been studying the 
book, 1 Corinthians, for the last couple of weeks, and Paul's approached this, this congregation regarding their adequacy and his and their worth is really worth our attention. Corinth was a pretty tough place on people. P- Corinth, back in ancient Corinth, was a very competitive culture. It was an economic machine, something like Los Angeles or Seattle or, or San Francisco. It was tough. And if you couldn't keep up, it would spit you out. That's the way Corinth was. And as it turns out, those who were part of the church in Corinth ranked pretty low on this adequacy scale. Most of them wouldn't have made it into what might be, have been called the impressive league in Corinth. The bar was too high. The p- competition was too tough, especially when it came to intellectual capacity. The church in Corinth, uh, actually the Corinthian society, were obsessed with intellect. They were obsessed with wisdom, and they had sophists, wisdom teachers, who were really the rock stars of that society. By the way, our word Sophia means wisdom, and it's the root of the word sophistry, wisdom, which really means clever, subtle, sometimes misleading, and um, directing in the wrong direction, sophistry. Well, in Corinth, sophists were like rock stars. They were, they were, um, they were sponsored by, by wealthy men and women. And the good ones who could present their philosophical views with what might be called an ornamental bravado were really popular and had lots of money and, and wealthy sponsors. They, and, and they went around winning converts to the cause by uh, speaking with intellectual fancies that, that, that intrigued the people. Historians tell us that um, the ancient advice in Corinth in the days of Paul it was recommended that if you were speaking to people and trying to win a following, the best way to do it would be to throw in a good dose of praise to your crowd, something like we oftentimes do. Flatter them a bit. Tell them that they're intelligent or how well they're, they're born or, or how they're, they have, they're connected and have personal power. So... Now, with all this in mind, this attitude and mentality in Corinth, it's interesting to imagine how the church felt when on Sabbath morning, something like this morning, Paul's letter is read to them out loud for worship. Chapter 1, verse 26. Here they hear Paul's description of them at the beginning of this letter. Brothers and sisters... Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were were of noble birth. Don't you think that's sort of an odd way to start out a letter with some some, uh, accusations of of lowliness? Paul doesn't start out with a compliment. He doesn't start out with a rousing, you're doing a great job, keep it up. You've got a high IQ, you've got a 
good EQ. You've got lots of resources. You're connected. You have potential. God is so excited that you're on his team. Paul doesn't start out like that. Instead, Paul invites them to reflect on what we might call their review of personal inadequacy. Corinth, wise, not really. Influential, hardly. Well-born, great gene pool, no. Paul invites them to look at themselves. And the implications that he draws from this inner reflection are even more remarkable because Paul doesn't tell them you're not worth all that much, Corinth, so lower your expectations. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, don't dream big. Don't expect anything miraculous from God. You haven't got much going for you. Don't suppose that you're influential in this world. That's not what Paul says. He doesn't say, thank God that at least a few of you are rich, a few of you are smart, and we can build things around them. He doesn't say something like that. Instead, he says, Corinth, you can expect great things now because God is up to something. Not because you have something, but because God is up to something. God is up to something that nobody could have anticipated and nobody could have done. And then comes that term, but God. Verse number 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. But God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. But God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When Paul says that last phrase, he's really quoting Jeremiah, that well-known verse that all of us have taken away from from that uh, Old Testament prophet. Centuries before Paul spoke, Jeremiah made this perspective-changing declaration when he said, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. And goes on to talk about just knowing God. That's what's most important. Those two words are turning point in Corinth and for us today. They were a turning point in Paul's life, and they can be a turning point for you and me. But God, not but I, but God. Paul says, Corinth, God is doing something in Corinth through you. God started it through Jesus Christ on the cross. And in him, he's overturning human expectation. In him, he's reversing who matters and who doesn't. In him, he's elevating the lowly and changing death to life. In Jesus Christ, he's turning guilt into innocence. He's taking what the world considers abject failure and making it into a glorious victory in Christ. If you carry anything away from our thoughts this morning, maybe it should be this. 
but God. But God. This world does not get the last say in who you are or what you become or what you might do. This world may say that your lack of education will always embarrass you. This world may say that your addiction will always enslave you. This world may say that your depression will always defeat you. This world may say that your failure will always define you. This world may say that your past will always haunt you. Your future will always frighten you. Your weakness will always cripple you. The world may say that, but God says otherwise. God says otherwise. He begs to differ. And this phrase gets used over and over and over again in the Bible. But God, but God, but God. Joseph said to his brothers who sold him into slavery, when years later when he came to, to understand the whole picture of his life from a different perspective, and he was reunited, you remember, with his brothers and his family, and, and Joseph said to them at that occasion, you intended to harm me, Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me when you did that to me, but, but God, but God intended it for good. Imagine it. Imagine that scenario. A murderous, homicidal, ego-protecting plot becomes God's way of protecting his people and feeding nations. Imagine that. But God. Same thing happens in Psalm 73 where Asaph laments the blatant unfairness of life. Read it later today, 70, Psalm 73. He, he just laments the, the harsh injustice that seems to skew human experience and he nearly uh, just forsakes his belief in God because of this. But at the end of Psalm 73, he comes to a significant resolve and he says in verse 26 psalm 73 my flesh and my heart may fail but god but god is the strength of my heart and my portion forever there it is but god god will ultimately win every wrong God will ultimately answer every question. God will ultimately clear up every doubt. He will. But God. Remember that rich and earnest, well-qualified candidate, that young man that came to Jesus and walked away from Jesus because the cost was too high, too great for him? His, the commitment that Jesus was asking was too encompassing, and Jesus' disciples come to him and say to him, who then can be saved? Matthew 19, 25. In that they were saying, God's ideal is impossible. Even salvation is impossible. That's what they're saying in their hearts. But Jesus says, but with God, but with God, but with God, all things are possible. So, stop excusing yourself from your calling from God. Stop excusing yourself from the calling that God's placed on your life. Stop letting yourself 
off the hook. Stop whining about your own inadequacy that moves you away from joy and away from the purpose that God has for your life. Stop that but I and start that but God. Of course you're not strong enough. Of course you're not smart enough. Of course you're not good enough. But God. But God has chosen the, the foolish things. God has chosen the weak things. He's chosen the lowly things. He's chosen the timid things. He's chosen the too shy, the, the too loud, the, the not very polished, the not very accomplished. But God. So, whatever is going on in your home, whatever is going on in your job, whatever is going on in your heart, in your family, in your health, in your money, I know it looks really bad. I know it looks really bad. But two words can change everything. But God. But God. I know that hurt and sin and pain and death are real. But they're not final. They're not final. Because the power of the good news, Jesus Christ dying on the cross, Jesus Christ raising from the dead, Jesus Christ ascending to heaven, enthroned in heaven, ministering in heaven. He's not finished. He's not finished with this broken world. And so you can say, but God, but God. There's nobody too lowly. There's nobody too weak. There's nobody too addicted. There's nobody too bruised. Images of this truth go way, way back in the Bible. Back to the time where God told Samuel to survey the sons of Jesse to pick out a, a king to replace Saul. And as the eldest of Jesse's sons stands before him, that strapping, impressive, commanding young man standing there in front of Samuel. Samuel was impressed. You see it in the scriptures in 1 Samuel 16. He was impressed, but God has something different in mind. And he said in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. Say the rest with me. But the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. People look at the outward appearance. That's the way it goes here in Walla Walla, isn't it? People look at the outside. They do. They look at your degrees. People look at how you look. People look at how smart you appear. People look at how attractive you are. People, that's, that's the way people are here in Walla Walla. But not God. That's not the way God works. God looks at the heart. What does God see? What does God feel? What does God feel when he looks at a human being? Even the most lowly, even the most unlikely, even the most uneducated. What does God think? What does God feel? This past Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, and my son Evan had the day off, and he was home with his daughter, Ava, and he sent a picture to me. And uh, it wasn't this picture. Oh, it's supposed to be on the screen. Yeah? Yeah, it wasn't that picture, but it was one like it. But I can't show it to you because, well, 
It was too risque. <laughs> but dad had a project going on at home. And you can see there beside Ava, there's some masking tape, and she's sitting on a couple pillows, and she's got a tool in her hands, and she's ready to help. And here's the text that accompanied the picture. This is what happens when daddy's on duty. Ava climbs on a stack of pillows and plays with a stud finder. You all know what a stud finder is. It has a little light on it and makes a little buzz. And there's Ava right there. You know, I want to ask you, how much is that little life worth? Huh? How much is that little life worth? What does God think? What does he feel when he looks at any single human being on this planet, no matter what their age is, no matter what their color is, no matter their background, what goes on in the mind of God? What goes on in his mind? How much does every life matter to God? You may recall that that little girl that was on the screen a, a minute ago had a hard time in the first week. You remember I told you about that. I was concerned. Neonatal intensive care and tubes and gowns and nurses, and I was frightened. Maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was. Maybe I didn't need to be, but I was. But you know, God nudged that little knife, that little life, and now she has prospered and she's doing so well. That doesn't mean that there won't be any more pain and challenge in life, not at all. There will be plenty. That doesn't mean that in the church, all but God stories will, well, I'm sorry, all those God stories will just have happy bows. That doesn't mean that everything's just going to be fine and everything will be real neat and tidy. But it does mean that we stand on this ground. Pain will come, but God will have the final, eternal, last word. But God. But God, because Jesus Christ was crucified, God is gracious, and we receive an undeserved payment for sin. Everyone who re receives it, who asks, and it's given. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 22, Jews demand a sign, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God, the wisdom of God. Yeah, the Jews were looking for miraculous signs, the signs of a different sort and different nature. The Greeks, they were looking for speculative subtlety. Both these instead were offered Christ crucified. It was scandalous to the Jews, scandalous, a stumbling block. They couldn't get over it. The cross was totally horrifying. It scandalized them. The cross, that, that was an instrument of torture reserved for Roman slaves, criminals, revolutionaries. That old hymn has it right on a hill far away. Stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and pain. That old hymn has it right. It was the most humiliating, most excruciating method of torture and death. And to speak of the Messiah, the anointed one, and the word crucified, both in the same sentence, was scandalous. 
It meant not only was this one under the judgment of the Rome, he was under the judgment of God. Christ, Messiah, the very word meant divine victory. But crucifixion meant curse. The curse of God and the curse of man and defeat. And then for the Greeks, the message of salvation through Christ, a crucified Messiah, was absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. No one would worship, no one would come and serve someone who had been crucified. No Greek would. To Greeks, God was somewhere, some off somewhere, an indifferent being. And the job of humans and human reasoning was to reach up and try to grasp this reality of an unfeeling God. God didn't care about you and me, according to them. God doesn't come down to reach and save sinful, suffering human beings, according to the Greeks. Paul says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So the question that we have to ask ourselves today is, what am I going to say? Am I going to say, but I? Or am I going to say, but God? Am I going to say, but I can't? Or am I going to say, but God can? That's the question. The way I look at it, our church is a but God church. Think of it emerging from the rubble of one of the most embarrassing moments in church history. That's really what it was. These were earnest but dejected believers who sensed that, yeah, they were disappointed, but God was still in their movement. Yeah, neighbors were laughing at them. Society was mocking them. The churches scoffed them, and the world maligned them. But God! But God worked in this movement this movement of nobodies and nothings and marginal, earnest believers and raised up a last-day church for the last-day history with a last-day message for this final moment of earth's history. God did that, but God. Now to us, the, the task may seem overwhelmingly daunting, but God. But God is moving. God is winning. God is convicting. God is touching. God is expanding His honor and His glory. Thank you, Caleb, for that wonderful testimony. God's at work in people's lives like Caleb and like others. Village Church, this church is a but God church. God has used the humble beginnings of this church to raise up a world-moving, global-impacting ministry. That's really what's happening, what's happened here at Village Church. It's really part of the Village Church DNA. That same passion that moved our pioneers into global missionary work moves here, is among us. Village Church members are taking the gospel message around the world right now as we worship here today. Violent praise. Well, they just returned from a week of mission service in, well, Hawaii. But it was, it was grueling, I know. And they were preaching the good news. Currently, we have members of our church, John and Ruby Stafford, who are in Africa. We have, we have uh, 
um, Shirley Panasuk and Beverly Thompson Nelson who were in India. We have others, other places taking the good news. Gospel outreach started by members of Village Church bringing funding to, to global mission uh, volunteers and uneducated people, but, but uh, in, um, indigenous, I am saying that wrong, indigenous gospel workers spreading the good news to the world. Gospel outreach, Blue Mountain TV started right up there behind that window where we have a Russian translator up <laughs> So right there, Blue Mountain TV in the Attica Village Church. Now, the gospel to the world through TV and internet. But God, Sunbridge Community Center, a ministry started with roots here in this church and now with physicians and dentists and assistants that help people come from the shadows of, of life into healthful living. And I have to say, but God, right? But God, prison ministry, but God, doing a great thing. Ministries right here in Village Church, Sabbath school ministries, children's ministries, amazing things happening in children's ministries, health and wellness ministries, calling and caring, singles ministry, music ministry. <laughs> but God, but God. Last year we celebrated our 50th right here in this beautiful building. We remembered the moving of God that made those people back 50 years ago build this beautiful church for gathering of God's people for worship to his glory. We remembered what God has done. God is at work. God is at work. And he's not finished yet. He's not finished yet. He's still at work. I know the Walla Walla is known for its onions, and yeah, it's known for its wine too now, and it's known for its dining and its high education. But it's also known for its secularism, its, its consumerism. It's known for its skepticism and its individualism. It's known for its isolationism. It's known for its backsliderism. That's a new one that I just... <laughs> but God, God is not done yet because God is not willing that any should perish, right? God's not finished yet. God loves College Place. God loves Walla Walla. God loves Milton Freewater. He loves the Walla Walla Valley. And God chooses the lowly. God chooses the meek. He chooses the poor. He chooses the unconnected. We know this because Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross, put to death for our sins. But God raised him up from the dead. Acts 2.24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And you know what? Death cannot keep its hold on you either, friend. But God. So I have a challenge for you. What if we, friends, what if we just keep praying and serving and giving and reaching out? What if we, what if he, we here do that in such a way, with such passion, with such love and kindness and compassion? What if we do that in such a way with such touching, such connecting in people's lives, with such relevance and meaning? What if, what if, what if in two years, in 2020, that's got a ring to it, 2020, 
in 2020, God would bring about, by that time, God would bring about a revival of godliness here in Walla Walla through Village Church. Why couldn't it happen? Why couldn't it? God is for us. Why couldn't it be that we would be known by everyone in Walla Walla as a place where lives are connected with God? Why couldn't it be? Why couldn't it? Why couldn't it be the place where people's lives are rebuilt by the Spirit? Why couldn't it be the place here where people's lives are empowered by His living Word? Why couldn't it be that He is alive among us? But God, what if, what if the aroma of this place, the beauty of this place, spilled out into the community in such a way that people recognized this place, this people, as a life-giving, life-transforming, life-helping, life-renewing place. People, what if? What if we gave ourselves, right now, gave ourselves to be wholly a part of this? When you pray, when you serve, when you give, when you volunteer, when you befriend somebody, when you invite somebody, when you love somebody, when, you're, when your heart gets broken and your greatest dreams die and you ask God to redeem your suffering and trust God to give you a new dream, a new dream that, that you couldn't even imagine, you become part of a spiritual movement on which the doors of history have turned. But God, but God, but God, and another door opens. Another life is changed. Don't give up. Don't stop dreaming. Don't stop praying. Don't stop giving into sin. Don't stop. Whatever hurt, whatever heartbreak, whatever problem you're facing, whatever inadequacy you may feel, and you will, when you feel unspiritual, and you will, when you're lonely, you get confused and frightened, and you will be, when you know that you're not smart enough, when you know that you're not strong enough, when you know that you're not rich enough, when you know that you feel like a loser and a nobody, think of these words. But God, but God, let's pray. Father in heaven, you are powerful and mighty to do great things. Oh, give us faith to believe, Lord. Give us faith to trust. May we put our hand in yours and see you do great and marvelous things because you are crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, ministering for us with power and are able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or imagine. Send us from this place, Lord, we pray, with that conviction and with that truth in our heart. But God, in Jesus' name, amen.